we fought it in court, but look at how the narrative changed and look at how reality was changed by the seeding of journalist equals criminal on Facebook. In 2020, June 15th, I was convicted. You know, there were a lot of legal acrobatics to get this case to court. In fact, the government's own lawyers first threw it out and then it miraculously was filed and went to court and I was convicted. So, you know, that that lie that was seeded in 2016, journalist equals criminal about me. Well, it, now it's true. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 15th, 2020. We're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck spoke with Maria Reza, a Filipino-American journalist and co-founder of Rappler, an online news site based in Manila. Reza was included in Times Person of the Year in 2018 for her work combating fake news, and she's currently fighting a conviction for cyber libel in the Philippines for her role at Rappler. Maria and her fight are the subject of the film A Thousand Cuts, released in virtual cinemas this summer and to be broadcast on PBS Frontline early next year. As a country where Facebook is the internet, the Philippines was, in a lot of ways, ground zero for many of the same dynamics and exploitations of social media that are currently playing out around the world. What's the warning we need to take from Maria's experience and the experience of Philippine democracy? Why is the Global South both the beta test and an afterthought for companies like Facebook? And how is it possible that Maria is still, somehow, optimistic? It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 15th. Maria Reza on the weaponization of social media. So I want to just start by asking, how are you? So you've been convicted of cyber libel in the Philippines, which is where you are as we speak, and you're facing a, a possible jail sentence. Maybe you could give our audience a bit of background on the case against you, where it's at at the moment, and how it's affecting you. Sure. So on June 15th, you know, in the middle of our lockdown, it was three months into the lockdown, I was convicted of cyber libel. And uh, what's interesting to me is that, you know, that's a crime that didn't exist when we published the story eight years ago that's now being hotly debated. And I was convicted of a crime that didn't exist for a story I didn't write, edit, or supervise. And, you know, the most interesting part to me is that while I and a former colleague were found guilty, our company was not, Rappler was not. So for this, I could go to jail for up to six years. Uh, but this is only one of eight criminal charges that the Philippine government filed against me in 2019. And so we, you know, there are weeks when I would be in court in four different courts in one week. But uh, the other cases, cumulatively, their maximum jail penalty is nearly a century. And they, the cases that have been filed fall under three broad buckets. The first is cyber libel. The second is tax evasion. Uh, there are five charges, criminal charges of tax evasion. And, you know, in order to bring this to court, the government actually reclassified Rappler as, and this is a direct quote from the documents, a dealer in securities. You know, the last I checked, a news group is not a stock brokerage. Uh, we do not sell stocks. So 
that's uh, the tax evasion. And then the, the biggest bucket, really, which is the mother case, I would put it under securities fraud. This would be foreign ownership. This would be, you know, there's something called violating the anti-dummy law. That's a criminal act in the Philippines. I kind of like the phrase anti-dummy, you know, but um, but what what they're saying here is that, you know, a small administrative charge has really been the mother case for all of these other charges that have been same set of facts, but, you know, both the tax evasion and the securities fraud cases have the same set of facts. And so this is brought against you for the work that you've done at Rappler, your news organization. Look, I mean, this has been a four-year battle. By next year, I'll have been a journalist for 35 years. It's a good benchmark for me. And part of the reason I've, I've said this from 2016 up, you know, the pattern of attacks against media globally is roughly the same. You know, in 2016, these kinds of exponential bottom-up attacks on Facebook. Facebook is essentially the internet in the Philippines. And those same narratives, for example, journalist equals criminal. That was seeded in 2016. And in 2016, I kind of laughed it off because I thought, you know, I have a long track record and you can look at that. But there's no such thing as context on social media. And, and that same message came top down from President Duterte himself in 2017, not in a press conference, not in an interview, but in his State of the Nation address. So what you're kind of getting sandwiched bottom up, top down, and then as soon as President Duterte did that, it was almost like a signal to the government. Uh, within a week or so, uh, we got our first subpoena. In 2018, the government filed 11 cases against us. And in 2019, I was arrested twice in a three-month period. Uh, one of the arrests timed at 5 p.m. So I essentially couldn't post bail and was detained overnight. And then uh, I had to post bail eight times in about three months so I could continue doing my job. So, I mean, I want to talk to you about all of that and about social media and the weaponization of that. But I, I like sort of just want to ask, like, why are you talking to me about this right now? Like, this sounds so terrifying. You know, one of the reasons that we're talking is because the film A Thousand Cuts about your experience and your persecution and the, and the persecution of Rappler is coming out in virtual cinemas this summer. And it's clearly a story about the rise of Duterte and sort of the title comes from this idea of the death of Philippine democracy by a thousand cuts. And I'm just like wondering, isn't it scary or risky for you to be putting that film out now and, and talking to me about all of that right now? You know, I've learned in the last four years that the best defense is to do what we do as journalists, which is to shine the light. It's the only thing because in the end, all of this is aimed to scare us to submission, to scare us to silence. And, you know, I, I think a thousand cuts isn't only about the Philippines. I mean, to finish that, right? So 2018 and 2019, I had to post all of those things. We fought it in court, but look at how the narrative changed and look at how reality was changed by the seeding of journalist equals criminal on Facebook. In 2020, June 15th, I was convicted. You know, there were a lot of legal acrobatics to get this case to court. In fact, the government's own lawyers first threw it out and then it miraculously was filed and uh, went to court. And I was convicted. So, you know, that 
that lie that was seeded in 2016, journalist equals criminal about me. Well, it, now it's true. So I guess the point that the reason why I want to, it's the reason why I've been jumping up and down. I, I really know how Cassandra feel, <laughs> felt and like Sisyphus, you know, you roll the rock up the hill and it cups, keeps coming down. We have to warn citizens in democracies because what happens in the Philippines doesn't stay in the Philippines. In fact, you know, in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, if you look at the the country that had the most number of compromised accounts on Facebook, it was the United States. But the Philippines was number two. And the whistleblower, Chris Wiley, actually called us the Petri dish. That's a quote. And he said that Cambridge Analytica and its parent company experimented in the Philippines with tactics of mass manipulation. And if it worked, they his word was ported it over to the U.S. So I guess I'm telling you that we are the guinea pigs, but you are the targets. And democracy is in danger. In fact, I think this is an existential moment. If we go back to, you know, information is power. The reason our world is turned upside down is because facts have been made debatable by the world's largest distributor of news. Well, you're a very chirpy Cassandra and I thank you so much for your bravery you're a far braver woman than I um it's it's oh it's, I don't think um, that's true I, oh it's, it most certainly is Maria um let's let's so let's go right back to the beginning then as you were talking about this seeding in 2016 and that's when you wrote this this series with Rappler um on the propaganda war and how the president had weaponized social media to bolster his campaign and then his vicious war on drugs that you know included countless extrajudicial killings. I wonder if if we can go right back to that beginning. Do you remember what first made you think, hmm, something's not right about what's going on on Facebook in the Philippines? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Rappler was actually created in 2011 on Facebook. If Facebook had had better search, we may not even have done a website. So we embraced Facebook. And because we did, uh, we grew exponentially the first few years, 100 to 300 percent, both in reach and revenue. But so what happened in 2016? Look, it was a three part series. And I wrote two of the three parts. The second part, the title of that was How Facebook Algorithms Impact Democracy. So the President Duterte, then Mayor Duterte, used social media extremely well. The first time any candidate for the top office in the land did so. And they used tactics that they were pretty open about. But what alarmed me was the use of anger and mob rule and how during the campaigns that was turned against a student who just asked a question about extrajudicial killings. So in April of 2016, we actually did an editorial because it was alarming that after a student asked the question of then-Mayor Duterte, a Facebook page was created threatening him. He was doxxed. His family asked for help, right? And at that point, the campaign helped. They they told people to calm down. So that was, but mob violence, that was the first one. Then, then the weaponization of social media itself didn't happen for the elections. It happened after. And, and the government even said this. They said that it was so successful that they weren't going to let go of it, that they were going to use it as part of governance. Little did we all know that meant 
weaponizing it and you know using it to target anyone by july of 2016 they were the propaganda machine this is the first of this three part series was the propaganda war weaponizing the internet that was the title of it at the beginning they were picking off ordinary people this i watched the transformation of our information ecosystem and and by extension our democracy because they began to scare people online and simultaneously it was a a kind of indoctrination that it is okay to kill i would never have thought filipinos could act in this manner but this again you know brings out the mob and then to watch that effectively used by uh, state forces because at a certain point the first i call it the first wave of disinformation networks and we did data analytics of this right two of the three were appointed to government office so then this became state sponsored it's violent and reflected the violence and the the climate of violence and fear that permeates our society right now because as it seeded violence online parallel in the real world i had a reporter coming home every night with videos of at least eight dead bodies you know if you look at what the human rights groups are saying by december last year our commission on human rights here in the philippines estimated that up to 27000 people have been killed that's incredible and mind-boggling to me and the fact that it is normalized uh the police keeps rolling back the numbers the official numbers in january 2017 it went up to 7000 they rolled it back to 2000 and then you know it's funny because at that point by 2017 it was at 5500 and in august this year you know the government arm of information essentially released numbers that said that it was at 5500 again we see the numbers being played with and i guess the point here is that the first casualty in a battle for truth in a battle for facts which is i think what we're what we're facing what we are fighting the first casualty is the number of people killed no one really knows now it's just horrific um I wonder I mean you you said this earlier that Facebook is the internet in the Philippines and in the film there's some mind-blowing stats about how Filipinos spend over 10 hours per day on the internet and the most time on social media globally and I wonder if you could just sort of paint a bit more of a picture about the role of Facebook in the Philippines and like are there other social networks or is there independent media or is really that the main way that Filipinos get news you know the i don't even know where to begin but thank you for citing those stats it's the fifth year in a row that filipinos spend the most time on social media globally and i think that led to kind of how were the experiment a place to experiment right it's kind of like drosophila like how how geneticists will experiment with fruit flies because the generations happen much quicker than in the real world that's kind of the environment here look Let me pull out the strand of technology and the role of Facebook. So 100% of Filipinos on the internet are on Facebook, 100%. And that means that we have free basics, which is 
what in your cell phone, you get Facebook for free, except that if you want to click through and read the article, you will pay for it. In a country where that's a luxury, paying for it, right? It's so much easier to seed disinformation and to do half-truths. Rappler is a fact-checking partner of Facebook in the Philippines. And I guess that's the other part, because I told you I kind of drank the Kool-Aid. Rappler was created with the idea that social media is an enabler. And part of the reason I'm so vocal is that, you know, once the enabler is now the destroyer, And one of the things I've realized is that it builds division into the design of the platform that now delivers news, right? It's us against them thinking that is built into there. That's a choice. And I think the the difficulty we have is that if we are being insidiously manipulated, and I'm not just talking of government, let's, you know, if you think about social media, if you think about Facebook, What do we do, right? Here's where the technology comes in. You put all your posts in, all of that is atomized and pulled together by machine learning to create a model of you. That platform knows you better than your family and friends because it is your data. It knows you better than yourself. And it takes, that model takes you and then takes your moment of vulnerability to a message and sells it whether that is to a country or a company. And, you know, that is that kind of feedback loop, right? When you're given that message, the machine learns again from how you respond, whether you take it or you don't, it learns. And this is what's dangerous about the way the business model of social media has developed and how we have become... uh, I've seen it firsthand in the Philippines, this kind of insidious manipulation. And uh, it is in the service. I'll give you an example. On uh, September 22, Facebook took down two influence operations, one from China, one from the Philippines, uh, linked to the police and military. The one from China had targeted Southeast Asian nations and, uh, you know, it first targeted Taiwan, then Indonesia, but was most successful in the Philippines. And what kinds of messages was it seeding? Pro-Duterte, pro-Marcos, the son of the former dictator, the daughter of the former dictator. They are both back in office. It was already seeding messages pro the daughter of Duterte, who is running for office for president in 2022. And here's the reason why they were pro- the network was probably taken down. That network from China had created fake accounts using artificial intelligence that were targeting the U.S. elections. That network, these networks were targeting me, you know, that me and Rappler. And that second network that was taken down, the one linked to the police and military in the Philippines, it was a network that Rappler discovered that showed you how they were, uh, the phrase in the Philippines is called red tagging, but they were essentially taking journalists and human rights activists and changing in plain sight, changing them into terrorists. This is very dangerous when during the pandemic, the government not only shut down the largest broadcaster, right? The ABS-CBN, which is the largest television network, the largest broadcaster in the Philippines, it didn't have its franchise renewed. But in addition to this, 
blow to independent media. It also passed an anti-terror law that President Duterte signed into law where anyone can be named a terrorist by a small group of cabinet secretaries. And when that happens, they can be arrested without a warrant and jailed for up to 24 days. I'm sorry I dumped a lot of stuff at you there, right? But this is this is the reality that we're living with. It's it's dangerous. And, you know, policing the information ecosystem. I hate to use that word. I guess, you know, using the values, say, of the UN Declaration of Human Rights to prevent these types of influence operations, to prevent the seeding of hate, to prevent mob rule online will go a long way to protecting journalists, human rights activists, protecting our rights in the Philippines. Yeah, please don't apologize for painting a vivid picture of your reality. I think it's really important. And I I did want to ask you about the takedown that Facebook did, uh, as you said earlier, last last month. They took down what what it calls coordinated inauthentic behavior. And this was, you know, 155 Facebook accounts, 11 pages, nine groups, six Instagram accounts, and and posting all of the stuff that that you said and you sort of tacked on the end there. But one one of the targets of it was you and, and was Rappler. And I'm I'm sort of curious how you felt about that, because as you said, one of the reasons why it probably got taken down was a small element of that campaign was also targeting the US 2020 election. And Facebook is trying to be on its best behavior for the 2020 election. It doesn't want to get caught with its pants down again like it was in, in 2016. But, you know, you must have been talking to Facebook about this for years. Like you said, you know, you were writing about this in 2016. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your relationship with Facebook and whether they've been responsive to your concerns or whether this, you know, really was, you know, really coming late to the party? Oh, what a complex question. So I think, you know, up top, let me say that uh, I'm one of the 25 or so people who created, we just announced October 1, the real Facebook oversight board, which is pushing for three actions from Facebook that would help protect U.S. elections. I I see this moment as a, a particular moment in time that will have an impact globally, because what happens in the U.S. elections will affect all of us. And the real Facebook oversight board, it's, it was the brainchild of Carol Cadwallader, the British journalist who did the Cambridge Analytica investigative series, and uh, Harvard professor Shoshana Zuboff. She wrote Surveillance Capitalism, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's a 750-page book. She's really brilliant, and she's been studying the internet and the business model. She comes at it from economics of Google and Facebook, right? So so it pulled together these experts. So we're very specific in the in the action points. Facebook within 24 hours gave the first one. And you know, the name itself, Real Facebook Oversight Board, I think, you know, this is where I've been pushed to go. So the answer to your question is, you know, I have long called, we've called ourselves frenemies. I believed in Facebook. And uh, I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle. I think that it could be an immense force for good. And for many years, up until 2015, it was in the Philippines. It was, a, you know, we even said that technology, this tech can help us jumpstart development in countries like ours, countries in the global south. But the change happened when instant articles, when, when Facebook got too greedy, 
when it went after the news feed, kind of like Twitter, right? It wanted the news and they created instant articles, except that they didn't change the algorithms. They didn't change the makeup of the platform. So they enticed news groups around the world to come in. And we did. I actually put Rappler all in. We were one of four news groups that Facebook invited. And I did it for a few months. I put all the articles of Rappler inside Facebook. And then in within four or five months, I pulled it all out again because it wasn't working. Um, so anyway, think about it like this. Your facts, right? The facts that journalists work so hard to get, that we spend a lifetime learning our craft of telling stories so that so that you care about it. Now we're thrown into the same morass as, you know, the joke you heard at dinner, or I think even worse is the lie that someone is trying to mislead you with. So, and here's what the data shows about Facebook today. Social media actually helps lies. What travels fastest on Facebook are lies laced with anger and hate. They spread further and faster than the boring facts of news. And they create a bandwagon effect of manufactured consensus is what Oxford University called it. But it's manufactured consensus to support the lie, right? You say a lie a million times, it becomes a fact. And here's the clincher. Without facts, you can't have truth. Without truth, you can't have trust. Without these, democracy as we know it is dead. How can you have integrity of markets, integrity of elections, if you do not have facts? So let's talk about the fact-checking partnership then that Rappler has with Facebook. Like you said, you're still you're still frenemies and you're a fact-checking partner in the Philippines. How effective do you think that is, like fact-checking in the Philippines when it's up against all of these forces that you're talking about? Do you think that that is an effective way of dealing with the problem? So content moderation, fact-checking is a thinking slow process for a thinking fast problem. You know, the Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast, Thinking yep. Slow, the two ways we think, right? Social media, it manipulates our emotions. That's part of the reason in 2018 in Science Magazine, you have uh, Sina Naral, Deb Roy, MIT professors who actually showed you factual, the data on Twitter on how lies spread faster and how you know facts just don't stand a chance of catching up. We do fact checking, and you know we were invited to do this by Facebook in 2018. That's how late it was, right? Because we were later than the U.S. But we do it because once we discover the lie, we then look at the network that distributes the lies. This is, I think, the difference with Rappler. We have a database we call the Shark Tank. We essentially can map our information ecosystem. And we have seen the evolution of this. This is in data. And you can see, you know, we've every takedown, Facebook has now done four takedowns since 2018. And every takedown, the biggest takedown, for example, was an investigation Rappler did and published 13 months before it was taken down. So because we did that series in 2016, and because I came under attack, right? Think about this. After that series came out in 2016, 
I got deluged with an average of 90, 90 hate messages per hour. And it was so new, it left my head reeling and I wanted to understand what was happening. I didn't believe that there was, you know, that Filipinos just changed their values overnight. And so we looked at the data. The way we fight back is with the data. And so that's that's why fact-checking. We fact-check because one, even though it doesn't really work, uh, we at least as journalists can tell you this is a lie. Using data analytics, technology, we then look at the networks. And that is the best defense that I've seen because you know we've found the network of the police that is attacking. I mean, shortly after ABS was shut down, police and government pages on Facebook named journalists in ABS-CBN, named officers of the largest broadcaster, and named me as communist sympathizers, a hop, skip, and a jump. It's, it's called red tagging. Again, we have this, it's kind of an antiquated way of saying it, but you know, we've seen this before, I guess is what I'm saying. I think the quick answer is fact-checking leads to greater insight about manipulation and the networks of disinformation. So have you ever been given any insight into why it took 13 months from when you flagged something to them doing the takedown? Because, you know, if I if I told my friend that I was being abused and harassed and they only did something 13 months later, I'm not sure I would stay frenem- even frenemies with them. Um, it seems very sort of generous of you. Do you know why Facebook was unresponsive in that time? You know, and this is documented in, in the U.S., Facebook was in denial. It is a company that is controlled by one man. In 2018, when when Mark Zuckerberg appeared in front of Congress, uh, in in these hearings, you could see, right? But 2017 was all about denial. It was, you know, deflect and deny. I know I work with people inside who do understand. But, you know, you, you see this in the resignation of Facebook employees they themselves feel helpless. And I think part of that is because there is so much to lose for the platform. But, you know, I really posit, this is something I've said all the time internally, if they do not act swiftly, if they do not act with enlightened self-interest, they will tear down democracy. They will help the destruction of democracy. And ultimately, this is bad for business. So I think the, the question really is, you know, do they want to take a short-term approach or medium and long-term? And I was hoping early on in 2016, when I first brought the data to Facebook, I was hoping that they would act as swiftly as they did when they realized they missed the move to mobile. If you remember that in 2014, right, Mark Zuckerberg then decided they were going to pivot the entire company and they fixed it and became market leaders again in two years. So that's what I was hoping. I was hoping in 2016 that, you know, by by showing this to really smart people, that they would find solutions. But I think, you know, what I've learned is that, <laughs> like everything, it's It's the same. In 2016, we challenged impunity on two fronts, the Philippine government and Facebook. And both of those have to do with power and money. And Facebook has both. And it is trying to find the balance. It's trying to learn how to protect the public sphere. 
but it's doing a bad job at it. So why haven't I given up on, on, on Facebook? I frankly don't think I have a choice, right? The power of Facebook is so great that, you know, uh, stop hate for profit in the United States. Who did it benefit? It actually benefited the advertisers, right? They pulled out for a while and then they negotiated with Facebook. But what happened to civil society? Where is civil society? And I guess that's, that's part of it. Like, I'm giving Facebook a lot of leeway. <laughs> like I told you, I don't think I have a choice, but I'm giving them a lot of leeway because I do believe that the greatest pressure will come from their employees. You know, this is, I mean, let's look at Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, when did I meet him? In 2017. A young, bright, you know, young, because I'm much older than he is, but, you know, he's a white Anglo-Saxon male who has never lived outside the United States. And the world is a different place. And I don't think when he thought about Facebook at the beginning, I don't think they realized that they were going to overturn power structures. They could only see their growth, but they didn't look at the context and the impact. And I think the last part, which we're still learning right now, is when you have two points, three billion people on a platform, you begin to have something that's called emergent behavior. And I really would hate to think that this platform that could be used for so much good will encourage emergent behavior that will destroy society, which is where it is right now. Okay, so let's say you did have a choice because you sort of, you, you, you were saying you don't have a choice, so let's be optimistic about it. And I just so <laughs> admire that so much. Um, it's a very foreign uh, instinct for me, but I think it's very admirable. But so in response to the latest takedown that happened last month, President Duterte came out and said he was considering banning Facebook altogether. And I think we'll talk about in a minute some of the similarities between uh, the President of the United States and the President of the Philippines. But this was straight out of the Donald Trump playbook, right? That the platforms took a, a minor step. Um, and this was in the context of the US, it was Twitter added a label. And suddenly, you know, there was this big threat of a, of a regulatory response and Duterte's threatening to ban Facebook. I, I was wondering, like, do you and Duterte possibly share a policy objective in that? Like if you could, you know, tear down Facebook tomorrow, do you think that that's a better world or do you still think that there is value in what it brings to the Philippines? I mean, this, my answer to that question would change depending on the context of the moment, right? Like, but in general, so the threat of President Duterte is exactly that. It's a threat because the group that would lose the most if he were to do that would be the state. And they know this because they have spent significant resources in creating the troll armies. I hate using that phrase, but in, how about this, in creating networks of disinformation. And I think, you know, what, say the military, for example, the armed forces chief of staff are, uh, has actually defended the military men who were who were named by Facebook. And you know what they don't understand is this data is there forever and it is evidence and they still don't quite get that what they do, they think in a hidden manner can be easily, is actually there to be seen by all. 
so that that's the first i think that you know if if facebook were to be banned if facebook were to be gone tomorrow well yeah it would be great in the sense that we go back to a time of distribution that news groups actually distributed the news and were responsible for the public sphere go back to that time right remember that the reason why journalists news organizations were the fourth estate is because not only did we write the facts write the news write the narratives we were accountable for it and and we protected we had standards and ethics that protected the public sphere we now no longer and this is maybe 2014 or 2015 where news organizations lost its gatekeeping role it was transferred to tech and the social media platforms that distributed the news abdicated responsibility you know to them they were just a highway which isn't true and as we now know there's a great book <clears throat> by Sina Naral that was just released September 15 Sina Naral is uh from MIT he spent the last decade looking at both the technology the engineering of these platforms and in the book he looks at neuroscience the impact on each of us i think the biggest difference between news organizations and the tech platforms is that news organizations have standards and ethics and we are not geared to manipulate you we do not want you to stay on our site forever which is you know when you say optimize as a tech person that's really the main value which is growth right and look let me show you the one decision that is embedded in all social media platforms this is how do they grow how do you grow your own networks on facebook and how does facebook itself grow and i'll put it in the context of the philippines which is the difference i think between the us and the philippines is that in 2016 we didn't debate the facts there was no cnn fox all the news groups were pretty much in the center and the discussion happened around a shared set of facts what happened after 2016 this decision of tech platforms and they found this through ab testing to grow the networks by recommending friends of friends right that one decision actually built division into the platforms So what does that mean? If you are pro Duterte and you grow your network and you become, you know, you have friends of friends, you will move further right because you're pro Duterte. If you're anti Duterte, you will move further left. So you begin to see that gap widening between the pro Duterte and the anti Duterte. And then with more growth, more recommendations of friends of friends, each side is pushed further away from each other. and that's when you begin to have different sets of facts because you don't see anything that's when the echo chamber kicks in right so so that one tech decision builds us against them thinking into the design of social media platforms i i it's not a coincidence that divisive leaders those who use us against them thinking they perform best on social media Sorry, I dragged you into the tech discussion, didn't I? Um, no, that's good. I want to go there. But I also just want to ask you, I'm curious, why do you hate the phrase troll armies? Like it seems to me that you must be one of the most trolled people on the planet, uh and it's had some of the worst consequences that you can imagine. What is it about that phrase that you don't like? 
I think, like CIB, these words have lost meaning. Coordinated inauthentic behavior, you mean? I, I also uh, have, have a lot of qualms with that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. And, and you know, let, let me put it this way. Coordinated inauthentic behavior, troll armies, these may be good in 2016, but they don't capture the changed world we live in because of the coordinated inauthentic behavior, because of these cheap armies on social media, right? So what happened? Coordinated inauthentic behavior in 2016 by 2018 has infected real people. Think about it like a virus, right? It's a virus of lies. I hate to use that in the age of the pandemic, but you know that was actually the way I was looking at it, like like an epidemiologist, the infection rate, right? So at the beginning in 2016, you have the narrative seeded, right? And it's coordinated and it's inauthentic, but it infects real people. And those real people believe in it and behave differently in the real world. So let's talk about the United States. In 2016, we know from the Mueller report and and from this thousand page report that was just published, that was released this year by the U.S. Senate, you know, that that Americans were targeted and both sides of Black Lives Matter were targeted by Russian disinformation networks that had an impact on real people. And that's that's the ripple effect that a lot of people don't take into account. I think it, is, it isn't a surprise that 2020 brought so much division out and you, know, and you can see the impact, not just on identity politics, but on law enforcement. You see the same forces at work in the United States that have already been here in the Philippines. And it's alarming to me that it, you know, the democracy with strong institutions, that we are watching it evolve in front of our sight. And I guess that's, so that's my answer to you. Coordinated, inauthentic behavior four years ago is now authentic behavior. And how do you deal with that? Um, so how do you deal with that, Maria? Um, like if I, if let's go back to, you don't have a choice and you have to live with Facebook, but I now give you a choice to have three things changed about Facebook in the Philippines tomorrow. What, do we need to do to make these systems work better and to make our information ecosystems healthier? I think, you know, you've been talking about like the algorithm and and what it optimizes, but what exactly is it, do you think, that needs to happen? You know, here I'll quote Shoshana Zuboff, who actually called the use of behavioral data, who she compares it to the slave market that led to the Civil War, right? To her, the use of our data to insidiously manipulate us should be outlawed. I'm still living my way into the answer of what things are there. But, you know, let me talk about three things that I think could be very helpful. I think the first is that action from Facebook to actually stick to its rules, because there's a certain sloppiness that a news organization would never have been allowed to do right? They have these standards. For example, on hate speech, I am the recipient of so much of this. I have watched my reputation and my credibility torn apart, bottom up and top down, right? And Facebook actually amplifies it. But 
in its own rules, it should it says it doesn't allow hate speech, but its definition of hate speech is so lacking, right? So a lot of us are saying, and David Kay, who's the who was the former UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, wrote a whole book about this, that content moderation on Facebook should use uh, the UN Declaration of Human Rights as a foundation. Allowing hate speech in this manner has given governments, and it isn't just mine, the ability to dehumanize journalists like me. And the goal of that dehumanization can lead to violence. You know, uh, there was a point when I was showing some of the attacks, and I actually look because I want to understand it. So there's a part of me that steps back, but you know, there's first the punch in the gut because like, oh my God, why is this allowed? And then there's the analyst in me that just says, oh my Lordy. And I was showing this to, I think we were doing a webinar and one of the people there, a German friend of mine just wrote me to say, you know, this is what the Germans did to the Jews. It opens the floodgates to violence dehumanizing others like why would this be allowed for mass distribution so that's the first right actually those are two because hate speech can lead to violence and the and the data connecting online violence to real world violence it is there there have been enough studies done and then finally the last part and this is technical i think this is data ownership and data portability right because I, it is a very complex issue to talk about regulation, which, by the way, Facebook itself says it wants regulation. But how do we do this in a smart way that, that allows the platform to do good and diminishes the bad, right? One of the ways, I think, is by having users have the ability to take their data and transport it somewhere else. I, I'm not a big fan of breaking up Facebook, right? Look, two ideas right there. So the first is there are other industries that that have had regulation. And I, it is time for regulation for social media, for technology, because leaving them on their own has led to this information dystopia. Uh, the second thing is that that these huge platforms should not be allowed to experiment on us. You know, if 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 it doesn't work, they should be accountable for it. Because right now we're fair game. The experimentation is happening without our knowledge. There's no accountability. So I go back to the main action point: user data, data portability. Antitrust will become a whole morass. And Facebook and all of the American Silicon Valley will say, you don't want to cripple us against Chinese dominance, right? How about this? Why don't we make them give the users more power? Data portability would mean that if I feel like you're not protecting me, I could take that data and transfer my data and ask my family and friends to join another social media platform. Because the advantage of Facebook is first mover advantage. They have scaled already. The thing that prevents other newer social media platforms from competing is they don't have the networks. But if Facebook doesn't spend enough time protecting its users, protecting the public sphere, protecting facts, and the users themselves vote with their feet, then that's something Facebook will hear. And I, I think that 
that is a simpler look. I'm very linear in thinking because I and I've said this both to my friends in Facebook and publicly. I feel like if the information ecosystem, if they don't do something about it now, immediately in the short term, this platform is being used to lay the groundwork for sending me to prison. I bear the brunt of its costs. It's um, just sort of, it's obviously such a profound point and I don't really know what one says to that. Um, I, I think um, I'm curious to get your thoughts. Everyone sort of seems to agree with you that it is time to regulate these companies. I think that there's sort of no question that some form of regulation is coming. And I'm wondering what you think of the role of liberal democracies in sort of leading with regulation and how that would influence debate around these issues in in places like the Philippines. Like we saw, we we talked about already, you know, Duterte sort of co-opting Donald Trump's move uh, in, in sort of threatening to ban. Another instance, a very famous instance of this is, you know, in 2016, we were all talking about fake news and the problem of fake news until Donald Trump started talking about the problem of fake news to just mean news that he didn't like. And then Duterte also co-opted that language around fake news um, being being the problem. And I wonder how much you think what the, the liberal democracies do in the form of regulation, how much that would influence what happens in places like the Philippines and whether there's sort of a risk or a responsibility for places like the United States to consider the way in which they regulate and the effects that it might have abroad. I hear three different questions in there. I think the first one is that, and it's the same argument Facebook uses when they say they don't want to be the arbiter of free speech. And the response to that is they already are, right? So not doing anything actually allows the values of illiberal democracy to continue because the policies they have put in place are illiberal in nature. So the the second thing is that countries in the West and America being at the forefront, this these are American companies, should find the right approach. And I don't think it is that difficult or as difficult as technology would like you to believe, because you we have regulated industries that are far more complex, pharmaceuticals, the air industry, telephones, right? There was a breakup of Ma Bell. And again, I, I don't believe that antitrust is necessarily the right way to go, but it it could be one of the things they look at. But don't take too long. I guess that's the other part. The longer you don't act, the worse it gets. And, you know, for people like us in the global South, because countries in the global South bear the brunt of the existing uh, system that Silicon Valley has put in place. And our countries have weaker institutions were emerging democracies compared to the institutions of the West. In the Philippines, you know, our institutions are weak. We have endemic corruption. We have law and order problems. I mean, you know, our police is accused of killing people. In, in the pandemic, we had more than 100,000 people arrested in checkpoints and people were killed, right? So I, I guess what you do in terms of this issue, will already have a ripple effect. Your inaction will have a ripple effect. And then I guess the last point in that is, I've testified in different groups. There's uh, 
the one I remember really was in 2019, in November of 2019 in Ottawa. It was led by Canada, but it was 14 countries. It's called the International Grand Committee on Big Data, Privacy, and Democracy. And there were 14 nations. Their members of parliament were sitting in it. And four of us testified in that particular hearing. It was Shoshana Zuboff. That was really my first introduction to her. Roger McNamee, the former Silicon investor who invested in Facebook, he wrote a book called Zucked. Jim Balsillie, who's the former CEO of Rim, which is the company behind BlackBerry, a company that chose a different business model. And it's interesting to me because he actually said that data is not the new oil, it is plutonium, right? And that aligns with a lot of the things that I have learned and the personal experiences I've had. I was the fourth. And frankly, I, the, probably the only reason I was there is because I was the, I lived the worst. And um, and I think that the difference, and this is where I, I really try to be constructive. I think this is a moment of creative destruction. And I became a journalist because I knew information is power. And I became a journalist because I know we need to hold power to account. And the information dystopia that tech has brought about needs to be reversed quickly. And what we're trying to do in Rappler is to do just that. You know, And there are three ways I see it. You have to deal with the tech. You have to keep the facts alive, i.e. protect your journalists. And then the last part is you have to build community. And you cannot build community if you don't have facts. That's kind of the framework that we built Rappler on, journalism, tech, and community. And I think that's a good framework to look for solutions. And so, I mean, finally, just, you know, as we sit here, we're now weeks out from the US 2020 election, and it seems like Facebook's rolling out new policy updates every day on stronger measures against calls for violence, finally removing lots of coordinated inauthentic behavior, banning Holocaust denial, QAnon, you know, it's, it's kind of endless. And I'm just wondering how it feels for you to sort of be sitting there uh, watching all of this action, um, whether it gives you hope that maybe you might see more of that in places where it's so harshly affecting you or whether you sort of feel uh, frustrated and despondent. Like, again, you know, the U.S. is getting a lot of attention and and you're being neglected. Hmm. I guess, look, I was, I ran the Manila Bureau and then the Jakarta Bureau for CNN. And, you know, I, I always, my my role then as the both the correspondent and the bureau chief in those offices was to make sure that our head office in the United States understood what was happening in in my part of the world. And I think that's the same way. I, I, I say that only because in the end, these policies are done in, in the, the West. And we in the global South have had to deal with that. And I can't overturn all these power structures demanding responses, but I can tell you, you can learn lessons from what we have lived through. You know, the first time I said that what is happening in the Philippines will come to you was in December of 2016, and I was in Mountain View talking to journalists and tech people, and I kept talking about it. That's why Cassandra, right? But I think I even wrote a piece for the LA Times talking about how our dystopian present is your future. I wish I had been wrong, you know, but now 
It doesn't matter to me whether you act because of self-preservation or whether you act to help us. The action is what we're after because that will help us. So again, enlightened self-interest. <laughs> it, it's it's very pragmatic, isn't it? I mean, it's you know, it's what you would expect of a journalist who's had to cover power politics forever. <laughs> well, on that sort of note of somehow pragmatic optimism, Maria, we'll have to leave it there because you literally have to go and meet with your lawyer for the case that's been the persecution that you're suffering. I just want to thank you so much for your your bravery. You're an inspiration, and I'm sure uh, it's not too much to say on behalf of everyone listening. Um, we we truly wish you all the best. Well, thanks for having me, Evelyn. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast and whatever app you use. And thanks for listening. <laughs>